Once again, um, thank you very much for allowing me to go away for a couple of uh, weeks, and it's great to be back. Um, we've just finished a series on Book of Judges. Um, I think that was a 16-week series or something like that. It was very long, um, and they were a great series. I heard uh, the, the talks both by um, Danny and, and Dale, great uh, great sermons. And so if you if you missed those, do go to the website and, and listen to them. Um, and we're going to start a new series uh, over the summer on the parables of Jesus, a discipleship through these parables, um, just to get us back on the, the, main, the most important things in the Christian life. Um, it's not just about you know, living our lives uh, differently, but really it's, the whole thing is really about Jesus. And uh, through the parables of Jesus, we want to focus on the basics of the Christian faith um, this, uh, uh, over the summer. So as we come to this passage, let's uh, pray together. Lord Jesus, we once again thank you so much that you are the word of God, um, that you are God who loves to speak your word to us. And Lord, we pray because all that I had prepared will mean nothing unless your spirit will come and use these words and bring life and power. And so, Lord, we plead with you that you'll send your spirit to me, that I'll be able to preach it faithfully, but also to the congregation that they'll be able to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, I forgot to say, actually, Maria has just come back. Uh, Maria is our, one of our mission partners. Um, we'll hear more about, from her um, in the coming days, but do say hello to Maria. Welcome back, Maria. Um, this is uh, not that long ago. Actually, this past month, June 15th, Daily Mail reported a finding by an Englishman named Wesley, Wesley Carrington, Wesley Carrington had bought the cheapest metal detector from the local shop, headed straight into the woods to try it out, and within 20 minutes, um, the metal detector started beeping. And so he dug down, um, and he found a spoon, um, and uh, a spoon and something else, um, half a penny. But then when he turned the machine on again, it started beep to beep again, meaning that there was more to be found. So he dug deeper. And he found the first of the 55 solid gold coins dating back more than 1,600 years. When he reported his finding, the experts later on returned. And actually, they dug and they found uh, uh, 104 more coins. The whole thing is valued uh, for about 100,000 100, um, uh, pounds, uh, which is 1.17 million Hong Kong dollars. So he found a buried treasure within 20 minutes of finding this rusty, uh, finding this cheapest uh, metal detector. But the, he was able to found it, uh, find it because before the days of banks and computers, I mean, really, money is almost a virtual concept um, to us. You don't see this money. You don't have wads of money. Well, maybe some of you do. I don't have wads of money sitting in my home. It's almost a virtual concept. But before the money became, money became virtual, people had things. Rich people had things. They had livestock or they had uh, expensive things lying around the house. And they had money. They had gold coins in their houses. And so they, some of them found it even safer not to keep it at home, but to go somewhere and then bury it in the fields. Sometimes these treasures were buried for religious purposes, but that, that's why they were buried. But even when these people intended to go back to get them later on, life might happen to them. 
right? So they might get sick or they might have been driven away. Um, uh, war might happen uh, or they've just um, died suddenly uh, in sickness. And, and these treasures, buried treasures, were, were lost, forgotten and left. And that is how the farmer in our story comes and runs, uh, runs into this treasure. He was probably a poor man uh, working on the land uh, that isn't his, I think the first point, and he comes to the treasure quite accidentally. On the next slide. Yeah, um, so he comes into the treasure quite accidentally. He's probably poor. He runs into it. He was tilling his, his land, and he runs into something. He goes, oh, I found something. The second man is in some ways very different. He was probably a relatively a wealthier person because he's, a, he's in jewelry um, business. He hasn't come to this priceless pearl um, on an accident. He, he was looking. He was looking for the finest pearls he could find. He was probably one of these people who dreamt, you know, fine pearls. And after dreaming, after searching for it, after year after year, he found this priceless uh, pearl in which he then sells everything to get it. So the farmer and the merchant are very different people. But what they have in common is that when they found what they were looking for, when they found this treasure, their lives were transformed. Their lives are completely transformed. They have the same reaction. They reorganize all of their life to, around this newfound treasure, the treasure becomes the most important thing in their life so that they go up, they, they go home and sell everything that they have to get that. That has become central to their life. And Jesus says that is what it means to find the kingdom of God and by extension to be in relationship with the king who brings that kingdom into our lives. That's what it means really to be a Christian. Christians are people whose lives are turned upside down, people who are transformed radically. The word uh, radical, um, the Latin word uh, for that is uh, radix, and it's apparently uh, the root word for, uh, it means root. It's people who are transformed at the root. When you are transformed at the root, you become a different plant. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are, the life is completely transformed, radically transformed. So what I want to start out by asking you is, what do you think? What do you think means to be a Christian? Well, some people think that it's about coming to church on Sundays. For some, it's becoming a nicer person. For others, it's about doing maybe community services. For many of us, Christian, being a Christian means sort of people who have taken out an insurance policy just in case, just in case there is life after death. And I hear it countless times about parents bringing their children to the church. Why do you bring your children to the church? Some non-Christians bring their kids to, to, to church. And the reason why, if you ask, is, well, I want my kids to grow up with morals. I want my kids to grow up uh, with, uh, I just want my kids to be a nicer person. And I'm reminded of a youth worker um, in the UK who had to deal with this. Um, the youth worker had a pair of brothers who came uh, to the youth ministry. The older brother was a complete troublemaker. 
barely making into school, getting bad grades, um, getting into all sorts of trouble. And the youth worker patiently worked with uh, this, uh, this kid um, until he became a bit more responsible. His life was changed. He graduated uh, from high school. He got a, um, a respectable job afterwards. And when this turnaround happened, the parents came to visit the youth worker. And they said, thank you so much for all the work that you've done with my son. His life really is turned around. It's transformed. But then he also had a younger brother. Uh, They had a younger son. He was a model student, athletic, handsome, um, smart. uh, Everything was going well for him. And a few years later, the same parents who visited the youth worker came back again, but this time they were furious. They were shouting at him, saying, how could you do this to him? What did you do to him? You've brainwashed him. And the reason why they came to visit was because this younger son wanted to be a pastor. You see, for the parents... The parents, Christianity was about becoming a nicer person. The cosmetic changes, changes that are superficial. It was about going to church. It was becoming a nicer person. When the son who had everything wanted to live his life for Christ radically, they couldn't, they, 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 they thought this was the most terrible thing that could happen to him. What do you think Christianity, being a Christian, is all about? Are you at the center of your life still? Are you still at the center and you want some changes in your life? Is that why you have come to church? Is that why you bring your kids to to the church? Or do you have put, have, have you put Jesus at the center of your life and reorganized everything, everything to put him there at the center? Is your Christianity about cosmetic changes Or is it a rebirth? That's how Jesus describes being a Christian is all about. You are reborn. You are changed at the root. Being totally transformed. But being totally transformed and reborn means that we have to give up everything for Christ. That's the second point. Um, when I say give up everything for Christ, I think what it means really is um, that you transfer the ownership of everything that you have and put Jesus' name on it. And you have to do it intentionally. And you have to do it again and again for the rest of your life because your instinct will be to hold on to whatever that you have and claim it as your own. So did you notice how intentional these two men who found the treasure gave up um, their belongings. When the first man found the treasure, he was composed. He thought, what should I do to get this treasure? He said, I'm going to go home, and I'm, ca- I'm going to count up all that I have, all that I have, and sell everything that I have to buy this field. The second man did the same. He went home and counted up all that he had, sold everything, to buy that precious pearl. It's that counting up of everything and selling everything that has to be done intentionally. In fact, this is is what Jesus demands from us. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you can turn to Luke chapter 14, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and on. 
Luke chapter 14, verses 5, uh, 25 and on. You see, in, in 25, verse 25, we see a large crowd, uh, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And I think, I've said this before, I think, I think I just think, I imagine Jesus looking at this large crowd that's following him. And I, I, I can imagine him going like this, thinking, you know, these people, they have no idea what it means to follow me. Because if they knew what it means to follow me, a lot of them will go home. I say that because of what Jesus says next in verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He's very clear in what he wants, isn't he? He doesn't want fans. He doesn't want fans. He wants disciples. Disciples who have counted up the cost and have given up everything to follow him. That's what he wants. What he demands is not that you just um, uh, come and, and, and see what's in it for you. Uh, to be healed or to be... Uh, he wants people who have counted up the cost and give up everything for him. Actually, not just even give up everything for him. It says that you have to love him, really. Love him more than you love anything else in life. More than you love um, anything else. That your love for Jesus is so great that your love for your mother and father, your husband and children or whatever, all the relationship looks like hate in comparison to your great love for Jesus Christ. That's what he demands from us, that we love him more than we love anything else. And that's the cost of following Jesus. I was running Christianity Explored a while back in London, um, and one of the students, he was a mainland Chinese student uh, who had come to England to study, he came and sat at the table, and for, uh, he came for a few weeks, and he seemed a bit mad and bitter. At one point, the reason why came out. He told me back in China, when he came to church, he said, people said everything was free. God has done everything for you. In Christianity, everything is free. It demands no cost. Everything is freely given to you. And grace, that's true. Grace is freely given. But then he said that the bad part was that they didn't tell him about the cost. He said that Christians tell you afterwards. In fact, he was there at the table to tell people that that's what Christians did. That they tell you afterwards what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, what the cost is there, uh, what, what the cost is. So I want to ask you, have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost when you became a Christian? Have we really given up everything to follow Jesus? It's really hard. In fact, we have to do this again and again and again because you think you've given up everything, but there will be more things to give up as the life changes. It's hard. I remember when I was in high school, I think I've said this before, I went for a run, and this is a very uh, big moment in my life. I still remember it fairly vividly. I went for a run, 
I lived in a very wealthy suburbs of Washington, D.C., and it was around this golf course, and I saw, you know, million-dollar houses, million, two-million-dollar houses here and there. And I stopped in my run. I said, I looked at him, and I said, God, I love you. I don't need all of this. I don't need wealth. I don't need status. I don't need comfort. I'll go wherever you tell me to go. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And I tell you this because I find that saying that prayer now is so much harder. I find that I am way comfortable with where I am. If God said, give up everything and go to Afghanistan or something, I would find it super hard to give up everything to do it. To, to do it. And so I need to sit down. I need to remind myself that I have given up everything for Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that you leave everything and then you do everything differently. But I think it does mean that you transfer the ownership over every part of your life to God. Um, you know, I don't know if you have, have books, you know, in my Bible, and the, the first page, it's got my name written on it, uh, written on it. Uh, you know, some people put stamp or stickers or something like that. What it, do, what it means is that you erase the name, your name, over everything that you have, and you put Jesus' name over everything, every part of your life. You know, I told you I struggle with uh, being so comfortable, and part of it is actually uh, money. For the first time in my life, I have disposable income, and I think, oh, it wouldn't be so nice to use it for my own comfort. And so when I came back, one of the things I did was I made a budget. I sat down, and I made a budget. I decided that I, I will treat my salary and all that I have in my bank account not as my money, but as God's money. Not just the 10% that I give, or the tithe that I give, but 90, the, the, the rest of it as well. This is going to be God's money. And if it is God's money, I have to plan how I'm going to spend this money. I can't waste his money. I can waste my money, but I can't waste his money. That's what this means. Transferring ownership over every part of your life, over everything, and giving it to Jesus. And I think that's what it means to count the cost. It means recognizing, not just money, but giving up our children, saying, you know, my child is not my own. I'm going to give my children to Jesus. It means spending time, giving our time to God, and going, how would God, uh, how would God have me use my time? I'm going to give all of my time to Jesus. Treat our relationships, our parents, our, our family, our, 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 um, our colleagues. How, how would God have me treat my parents? How would God have me treat my colleagues? It's every part of your life and saying, God, this is yours. I, I've counted the cost. This is the part that I'm giving to you. Giving up everything to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is hard, but did you notice? Did you notice how the farmer sold everything in his joy? In his joy. Did you catch that word joy there in verse 44? How the farmer goes back to sell everything in his joy. You see, giving up 
everything is only possible. Giving up everything in joy is only possible if you have something that is far more valuable than everything that you already possess right now. If you have something that is so great, you'll be able to give up everything that you have to get that in your joy. Just picture in your mind all the things that you have in your possession. Just picture it. Your house, your car, TV, jewelry, shoes, um, uh, money in your wallet, money in your bank account, everything that you have. Your favorite t-shirts, I don't know, some of you have stamp collections, weird collections that you have, everything that you have. This means that giving up all of those things, selling it to get this in his great, in, 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 in your great joy. That's what the farmer did when they saw, um, when he saw the treasure. Um, and, and the question that I want to ask is, what do you need to see? What do you need to see in order for you to be able to give up everything that you have in joy, joyfully? What do you really need to see so that you go, I, ch- I can give up everything that I have to get this. What do you need to see? You see, that is the value of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is the relationship um, that we have. That's the worth of the gospel. The thing that if we really realized who Jesus was, if we really saw the gospel clearly, we would give up everything that we have, not just our possessions, but all our relationship and everything that we have, and say, I'm going to follow you, and we're going to do it with great joy. The Bible is full of stories of people like this. Remember Zacchaeus, when he came in relation with Jesus, he was giving money away left and right. You know, the thing is, he was a tax collector. He was single-mindedly collecting money before, but in his great joy, he was giving things away. Do you remember the, the, uh, the, the, the woman with the alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, how she broke that perfume in Jesus, on Jesus' foot, and she didn't think that it was a waste when everybody else around them was going, this is such a waste. You can do so much with that money. That lady did not see that as a waste because she met Jesus. She met Jesus, and Jesus became the most valuable thing in her life. Do you remember Paul, who had once had everything, and gave up everything to follow Jesus Christ? How he says he counted the cost. He wrote in Philippians uh, 3, Whatever was to my profit, I now count but loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. What is more, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as my, uh, as, as my Lord, for whose, whose sake I have lost all things. He counts them as a loss in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord. Sometimes we forget what we have. Sometimes we forget. We need not, not just to count the cost, but we need to count what we have in Jesus Christ. And I know that's why you've come this Sunday, to remember what you have in Jesus. And I know this is something that many of you seek to do every day when you open up the Bible, to remind yourself what Christ has done for you, what this relationship with him means. 
And this is something that we'll need to remind each other of. That's why we meet in small groups. We encourage each other to remind us that we have this treasure in Jesus Christ. Many of you have heard me quote um, C.S. Lewis in this part um, uh, many times, but it's such a, such a great quote, and I'm going to quote it one more time. It's from uh, The Weight of Glory, um, his uh, sermon preached once. He wrote, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit, to, uh, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and Stoics, and no part of the Christian faith. What he's saying is that, what he's saying is if there's this idea that this desiring something for myself is not part of Christianity, that we have to just deny everything, he's saying that that is not part of Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's Kant and that's Stoics. He says we should have this strong desire for us to be happy, to desire um, the things for ourselves. And then he goes, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of rewards and staggering nature of the reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too, too weak. You see, he's saying God, God wants our desire to be even greater than what we have. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. We are made for infinite joy. We are made for a relationship with this living God, only what God can offer in our lives. We are made for greater things than drink, sex, ambition, money, holidays, or whatever this earth could offer. And I pray that your desires will not be too easily satisfied. That when you have good things in your life, you will thank God, but you will desire not just the gifts, but the giver that you will desire your relationship with God himself, that you won't waste your life fooling around with the, with the, the half-empty pleasures, but be filled with the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior each and every day. Amen. We're going to um, sing our final song, How Deep the Father's Love. Once again, it's this reminder of what we have in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing of this great love for us.